Oh, the music has been great. I just asked her to come back up, sing about three more times. We, we call it a day. It would be beautiful. What a wonderful song. What a, what a perfect song. What perfect music to really focus on at this time of year, this time of life. Anybody out there struggling? Anybody having a hard time? Anybody? It's okay. We have hard times. And we're going to look at Paul. We're going to look. And we're reading the book of Philippians. And he's in jail. He's having a hard time. And he's going to show us what to do when we get into a hard time. Well, I hope everyone has had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Has everyone gotten through the tryptophan hangover? Everybody had their coffee and they're not feeling so drowsy anymore. It's amazing how well that works. There was a picture floating around of me snoozing on my couch. Thank you, Stephanie, uh, for posting that. Uh, so I hope that everybody has enjoyed and had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Anybody out there traveling? Anybody passing through on their way back? We got a few travelers. Good. Uh, we have family with us that have decided, well, they haven't decided. The Army decided it would be good to move them from Washington State to Brooklyn, New York. So they are in mid-transit, and we have enjoyed the Thanksgiving uh, with them, John and Stephanie. He's a, a captain in the Army. He'll be managing the recruiting office there in Manhattan. So exciting times for them in the very near future. Thank you guys for being here today and, and joining us and letting us enjoy your family. Uh, take your Bibles, if you will. Go to Philippians chapter 2. That is where we're going to be reading from. How many of you that were traveling as you were on the road, if you were driving, how many of you came across a sign or had this flash up on the dashboard of your car? Go ahead and put that up. Anybody know what that is? Know what that means? All right, there, there's, two, there's two type of people in the world. Those who never see that sign on their car. And then there are those that confidently say, I know my car, it's going to be okay. All right? Okay, there, there are those that to them it's an incredible rush. That, uh, that, that, that watching that light come on and then drifting into the gas station and hearing the engine sputter to a halt as the car glides up next to the pump. Anybody ever pulled that trick? All right. When our vehicle's light comes on and we've been driving around for a while, and sometimes this may happen to you on the road where, where you're headed down the interstate, and the light comes on and you're not exactly sure where the next exit is, and you're driving down the road, and, the, and the, it's, it's not on E, but that little needle is buried below E, all right? And we call that what? What, what was that? <laughs> Stressful. <laughs> what do we call that? Running on, running on fumes or running on empty, right? Running on. Have you ever felt that way in life? Running on empty? We're going to take a look at the Apostle Paul and look at, kind of look in his life at where some people say he might have been kind of running on empty at this point in his ministry. You know, when he was writing the book of Philippians, we, we've talked about and discussed that this is one of those epistles that he wrote from prison, whether that be house arrest or prison or somewhere. Wherever it was, 
it was not where he wanted necessarily to be. Nobody says, yes, sign me up, I'll go to prison. But, but God was using that low point in, in, a, in a major way in his life. You see, Paul had witnessed a, and had a pretty amazing testimony and a pretty amazing ministry. Think about this. He was called directly by Jesus Christ. We, we, we know in Acts, that moment to where he is met on the road to Damascus in his amazing conversion, where, where he ran directly face to face into Jesus Christ. He was commissioned by the Holy Spirit. And in a sense, his ordination certificate, if you will, was signed by the Holy Spirit. I am commissioning you to go for a special mission. His ministry, you could sum it up in Acts <clears throat> where it said in Acts 9.22, it says, that Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was Messiah. Everywhere Paul's going, these little groups are popping up, these little ecclesias, churches that we call them now, these bodies of, of believers that are rallying around one another and taking care of one another and living in a very unique and different way in their world. The word of the gospel was moving and spreading throughout the known world world at that time. Signs and wonders were being done. People were being healed. Dead were being raised. This wasn't easy work, but man, it was productive. There was opposition as well, so it wasn't like he's going around and everything is just hunky-dory and fine. In fact, even at this point in his ministry, more than likely he had gone through several beatings. And we, we've read the stories of different problems and things that he ran into, of course, persecution, uh, even to the point of being stoned. They literally threw a bunch of rocks at him with the intent of leaving him dead. But it's amazing. It says that he got up, dusted himself off, walked to the next town, went to the synagogue, opened up the Torah, started Abraham, went to David, connected him to Jesus Christ, and said, he's the Messiah. He did it all over again. You throw a bunch of rocks at me, I might be changing my resume. I might be looking for new employment at that point, but not Paul. That's the kind of ministry that he was seeing. Success after success after success. And the, while it was hard and while there was opposition, that opposition just told him that, hey, you're doing the right thing. Keep moving forward. Keep going. But now he would run up against something new. Now he's locked away. Now he's alone. Now he's disconnected. And while God had used him in a great way, and he had been a great evangelist, and uh, this amazing new work was starting and spreading around the world through, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul. Now he's in a new place. Now he's sitting and wondering, what, what am I doing here? Why? Why? We've even seen at some point that Paul is now even beginning to wrestle with his own mortality. You can, you can see it in the writing of the New Testament. There was an anxious awaiting of Christ is returning. It could be today. It could be soon. We got to get ready. And now Paul's beginning to wrestle with this idea that, huh, this church 
this movement, what I'm doing is going to go beyond me. Now I'm not even just reaching out, but now I need to begin to teach these people how to grow deep, how to stand firm in their faith. They need to connect to the Savior. They don't need me. Just like a father wants his child to grow up and become independent, to be able to live on his own, to, to make their own decisions. Paul is now looking at these churches and realizing they're going to have to live without me. They need the mind of Christ. They need to be running on empty. And when I say running on empty, is not an emptiness of disconnected from the Lord, but a disconnectedness from themselves, from their own strength, from the world around them. They need to be fully connected to Christ. So here we are, Paul at this low point of his life. But we see how to deal with and wrestle with the struggles that we're going through. It's, it's, a, it's amazing. We hear this morning I, the, the message from, about Philip Shuring, that he's dealing with struggles. Sometimes we feel like the only thing we have, like the song said, is, is just a broken hallelujah. The last time we just sang, man of sorrows, who Jesus was. Well, to get these people to grow deeper in their own faith, Paul himself had to grow deeper as well. Sometimes I think we look and we see people in the scripture and we think they arrive. Sometimes we think that there are different plateaus where, where you go, get to a certain point and you don't move. But really in life, it goes like this, doesn't it? It's up and down. There are struggles. There are days when it feels like everything goes right. And then there are days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, where it just feels like everything's pushing back against you. That if you go left, five minutes later, you realize you should have gone right. doesn't matter what you do. It feels like it is wrong. Paul is growing deeper in his faith, and the only way that he, he realizes the only way to help those churches that he is ministering to to grow deeper is that he must grow deeper as well. God is taking through this time of struggle. He is, he, is, he is forcing Paul to stop and to meditate and to trust that the same almighty sovereign God that was empowering him to go from place to place, that was using him to show signs and miracles, to see lives change, to see the forces of evil in the world rebuffed at the sound of the gospel in the name of Jesus, this same God doing these great th things through him, was the same God calling him to stop and to suffer for a little while, to be still, to meditate, to trust him, even when I'm sure it seemed to Paul like God had abandoned and forgotten him. It's here in this dark moment of life that Paul learns and steers the readers of his letter to the Philippians, and to some of the most important principles that this short epistle contains. Paul recognized that there will be struggles, and he dealt with them on an emotional and on a spiritual and a physical plane. Paul's recognizing that the movement that we now call Christianity, the church, he is recognizing that it was going to go on 
at some point without him. The Philippians, as well as those of us here and other believers around the world, must come to grips with this reality that the only way for our communities, our our ecclesias, our church, our gatherings of believers, our assemblies of Jesus-following, gospel-centered believers to survive and to thrive is to empty ourselves and make room for the mind of Christ to revolutionize the way that we live our lives. It's something the Church of Philippi had to reckon with, and it's something that we at Big Woods need to reckon with as well. How do we do this? Perhaps you've heard the little acronym for joy. All right, what is, what is joy? Does anybody remember this? Say it out. Jesus, others, you. Jesus, other yourselves. Looking through this, this passage, I kind of see some of these same concepts. They're rearranged in a different order. And the, the order's not important because it's not a step one, step two, step three. And we'll talk about it a little bit as we get into the message. The message here is still the same. Let's read through this passage together. And we'll take a look at what it means to have the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start with verse number 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father, we come to you today blessed in so many ways. We, we praise you and thank you for who you are. And we hope to get a little glimpse of you from the scripture this morning. Thank you for the time that we have spent together in worship, redirecting, redirecting, refocusing our mind on who you are. Lord, we we are truly overwhelmed. We need to be overwhelmed more by who you are. We thank you that though you are mighty and glorious and all-powerful and awesome, that you humbled yourself that that is just as much of your character as your glory, and that you have shown us. You you didn't just tell us, but you have shown us how to live the life that you want us to live. Bless the time in your word this morning. May it be profitable. May it be uplifting. Lord, we trust in the blessing that you say that you will provide in the reading of your word and in the preaching of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So number one, 
This idea of emptying yourself and getting the mind of Christ, number one, is focus on yourself. And again, this isn't an order. This isn't a step-by-step. All right, we're not going to dive into your best life now kind of stuff on here. So, so hold on with me. Follow me through this idea of focusing on yourself for just a moment. Because when I say focus on yourself, it's because we all need to realize that in order to have the mind of Christ, we've got to empty everything about who we are out to make room for him. All right, this is not a natural thing to do. Very naturally, we are very self-absorbed. We are self-protecting. We are even self-aggrandizing. The idea of self-emptying is not something that most of us get up in the morning and say, the first thing I need to do is get rid of what I want. That is going to be a battle, and that's going to be a fight. That is something that we are going to have to focus on. You see, because all these things are going to get in the way and prevent Jesus from taking his rightful place as Lord and King of our life. You see, our God is a jealous God, and he's not going to be willing to put up with 50% of us, or 75% of us, or 90% of us. He calls us to lay our life down as a sacrifice and the altar and to put him on the throne of our life. So we have to focus on ourselves because we're going to have to fight ourselves. I'm afraid many times we have too much of a Jesus take the wheel strategy when it comes to our Christian life. And that idea is when the car of life begins to spin out of control, we quickly call out for help as well we should. But in reality, we had no business being in the driver's seat in the first place. All right, see, we live in a fast-paced society. We've got to go. We've got bills to pay. We've got things to do. Our kids have got to get places. All right, I've got to figure things out. Lord, I don't have time to sit here in the driveway for you to come out and drive the car. So I'm going to hop in. I'm going to get going down the road. You catch up. All right, and by the way, bless what I'm doing. All right? But God hasn't called us to do that. He has called us to sit in the passenger, passenger seat. All right, sometimes these things happen and we wonder, where's God? Why, why isn't he with us? Because we left him, of course, again, with our best intentions. So I say focus on yourself. When I say that, it's, it's a call to make sure you're where he wants you to be. Because our natural inclination is to go where we want to go in our own time, in our own strength, in our own way. But that's not how God works. All right, And, of course, we want to add to all that. Lord, now that I've got all these plans laid out, I'm going to bring you into the picture because what I need for you to do is to bless this. And that's, that's, that's a recipe for problems. So we have to focus on ourselves and do a reality check, reality check and make sure that we are where he wants us to be. Not only do we need to make sure that we are waiting on and moving with God but we all, and, and to, to know our proper place, but we also have to focus on ourselves to make sure that we are more than just an imitation of who God wants us to be. You know, we, we can't play the Christian game. It's, it's easy to do that. I can learn the songs. I can learn the verses. I can learn the little cliches. And sometimes we play the game so well that we even fool ourselves. 
But God has called us to be genuine. I like what J. Vernon McGee says in his commentary on Philippians. He said, when Paul says here that Christ is the pattern for Christian living, he is not talking about imitation. He is talking about impartation, the putting on of something that wasn't there before. That is the mind of Christ should be in us, and it can be there only by the power of the Spirit of God. We focus on ourselves because even in our best of intentions, we can very easily slide into pride and selfishness. Paul heads that off very quickly in verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And it's here once we've emptied ourselves, once we've checked our motives, once we've come to a place of true humility that we can properly live out the mind of Christ in our actions. We need to focus on yourself. Number two, focus on others. Verse number four. Take a look at verse number four with me. Let each of you look not only on his own interest, but also on the interests of others. You know, the life that we are called to live, the people that we are called to be, is not natural in the sense that the way that we live must look different than the prevailing fallen culture that surrounds us. You know, in Paul's time, the world was severely divided. We can kind of identify a little bit with that today. We have people that are pulling and fighting and trying to separate and, and, and push people group against people group. And it was, it was the same thing happening back in, in the ancient world as well. It was divided by economic class. It was divided by social status, divided by gender. It was divided by ethnicity, divided by citizenship. Everyone was compartmentalized, and different people groups were not to interact with one another or only as a need-to basis. In the middle of all this division that was pushing people away, this division that, that kept people away from one another and even pushed a large portion of people down with the intent of benefiting the few. Right? In the middle of all that division, Paul preached a gospel that called people together, that called people to unity. These groups of Jesus followers were living in a radical way that no longer focused on accumulating as much praise for oneself or accumulating as much wealth or as much status, but focused on selflessly giving to the needs of others. As is often the case, a radically different way of life can be very dangerous to the status quo. But this way of life was also very appealing, very attractive. Here in this Christian community, slave owner and slave would sit at the same table and share a meal, which was a huge thing in that time. Here women received reverence and respect and were not treated as just a commodity. Here in the, these ecclesias, these church, these Christian communities, 
Those with land would sell it and give it away freely, not because they wanted to achieve some status, not because they wanted recognition, but because those around them were hurting and poor and needing. And they said, I've got something. They don't. I'm going to give it away for the benefit of my brother. Here, Jew and Gentile would stand side by side and sing praises to Jesus and then clasp hands and bow their heads in prayer to the Father. This community of believers were marked not by a name on a church sign or a creed or confession, but by lives marked by humility, love, and unity around a person they considered Lord and Messiah, Jesus. That phrase was so loaded in their time. That little phrase, Lord Jesus Christ. We see it so many times. All right? It it, it was commonplace in the marketplace that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. That little phrase, Jesus is Lord, when you said that, it was an elliptical phrase. What it meant is Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. That was enough to imprison, if not sign your death warrant as a traitor to the empire. And these Christian communities rallied around the Lord Jesus. In this Christian community, humility was a virtue, not something to be scoffed at as would have been in the ancient Roman world. Humility was a sign of weakness, and weakness was dishonorable. I read this in a commentary this week by Lynn Coek. It said, today Christians and many others, they they praise humility as a virtue, as, as well they should. There was virtually no difference between humility and humiliation in the Roman world. Both ended with the reality of low status. Paul's call for humility is unprecedented in the ethics of his day. No self-respecting Gentile would concede that humility is a virtue. Deeds were to be done where people could see them and thus praise the one doing those actions. Personal self-worth and value were determined in the public sphere, not in the private reflections of the individual. But it was completely opposite in the church. And it was growing, and it was spreading, and people were being drawn to this new movement because of the way that they lived their lives. In spite of how the world looked at it, humility was important to Paul, and humility is key in our Christian life. While the world may now respect humility when it sees it, we must recognize that the Christian life, a Christ-like life, is impossible without humility. Again, Lynn Coick says in her commentary on Philippians about Humility says a prideful attitude cannot bow to God's good purposes and might confuse one's selfish desires with God's will. Oh, how easy that is to do, to confuse what we want and then put God on it. God, that's what you want, right? Come bless us, right? How easy it is to confuse one's selfish desires with God's will. Only from a posture of humility can one see clearly both God's good works laid out for them and their own need 
for God's strength in doing these works. I don't think I have to argue very hard that that humility is not something that is natural, that is not something that, that springs up naturally from within us. We naturally seek to accumulate for ourselves. And in many ways, that is good. I mean, we do need to provide. We do need to work. We do need to pay our bills. We do need to provide for, for our families, for our children. We do need to, to give graciously to those in need. But just as we naturally seek to provide for our needs, Christ calls us to make our response to the needs of others just as reflexive a response as if we were meeting our own personal needs. I don't know about you, but I don't need to think about growing, going grocery shopping for my family or, or when my kids gets holes in his shoes or, or when something doesn't work in the house, we, we fix it. We get it done. We, we provide for ourselves. And that same reflexive attitude should be within our own body. Somebody has a need. I, I, maybe I can't meet all of it, but I can step up and help. I can rally around and try to find who can help provide. And truly, really, this attitude of focusing on others like we need to can only be done if we, number three, focus on Christ. It's at this point in Paul's letter in verse number five that, that Paul literally breaks out into song. This is the beginning of the Christ hymn describing the nature of Jesus, displaying both perfect majesty and perfect humility. It's not an overstatement to say that the depths of this hymn are literally immeasurable with our finite minds. Jesus, just as much God as the Father, just as glorious, being in the exact form of God. I right, remember Jesus' words in the, in the New Testament in John 14, 9, when he said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Not a good representation of the Father, not an imitation of the Father, not almost the Father, but has seen the Father. So Jesus being in the exact form of God, he refused to exploit the just glory and just praise that was due him, the just judgment that was due to man, but instead humbled himself. It's a hard thing to think about. It's a hard thing to understand. And while the depths of this passage can and should be explored, what I want us to see today is that it is this focus on Christ that we must have if we are going to be able to empty ourselves, to properly focus on ourselves, to genuinely focus on others and be reflexive in our actions and into their needs and to live sacrificially for others. We cannot and will not do those things if we do not have the mind of Christ. Very quickly, I just want to look at a couple things to take away from the beginning, this, this portion of the Christ hymn. Let's look at, at and read over, starting in verse number 5 again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. Boy, that's good right there, isn't it? You don't have to go figure it out. It's their for the taking. It is yours. Where in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, or a thing to be exploited, or a thing to be used. In fact, Jesus didn't use his position 
to get out of going the cross. It was his position. It was his Godhead. It was his deity that uniquely qualified him to be our Savior. But though he was due so much more, now we see that perfect humility. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And as if that wasn't enough, as is just being a human and living in this broken world amongst sin, amongst the dirty and the filth that, that ruled the world, as if that was not enough, it says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. The one who spoke and the world appeared. Countless billions upon billions of stars in the sky. And Genesis says, then he created the stars also. Became obedient to the point of death. Not just any death. Even death on a cross. With this, this idea, with this, this look into the beginning of this hymn, I want us to take away two different things. Number one, the power to properly focus on ourselves and to live like we need to live for others comes only through Jesus Christ. In verses number one through four, Paul lays down an impossible gauntlet for us to live out. Have the same mind. All right, how many times can you even agree on where to eat? Much less to have the same mind as a collective group of people of how to move forward for the cause of Christ. But he says, have the same mind, have the same love. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Try that one out for a day, for an hour, for a minute. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. See others as more important. That one will knock you out pretty quick. Try that one out when traffic's busy. See others as more important. Come on over. Failed that one many times. Sacrificially meet the needs of others. Yeah, you can't do any of that. I can't do any of that. But that's okay because he gives us access to the mind of Christ and the ability to do that. This short list is utterly impossible in our own strength. We must tap into the strength made available to us through the mind of Christ. And it's already yours in Christ Jesus. So not only do we need to recognize that, not only does Jesus give we, us what we need to live the Christian life. He has demonstrated exactly how we need to live that life. Who of us will ever give up more than Jesus gave up? Who of us will ever experience more injustice than Jesus? Who of us will ever experience as much pain and hurt and suffering as Jesus? Who of us 
None of us. You know, Jesus didn't just talk the talk. You ever run into one of those people? Do as I say, don't as I do. As I do? All right, that, 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 that's a tough one. All right, Jesus didn't call, say, hey, here's, here's some things for you to do. Good luck. He not only talked this talk, he walked the walk. And then he said, follow me. He went through the suffering. He went through the persecution. He went through the affliction of this world. He took everything that could be thrown at him and came out victorious on the other side. In the middle of our struggles, he did that so that in the middle of our struggles, we can look directly to him and we can continue through the pain of this life because it's going to get painful. It's going to get frustrating. It's going to get ugly. It's going to have hurt. It's going to have unexpected turns. It's going to have low, low points. But he said, that's okay. I've already been there. And I came through to the other side. And so I'm going to go not only through it and show you that I can be victorious in it, I'm going to go back and walk through it with you. And I'll give you the mind. I'll show you how to be victorious. And oh, by the way, my victory is already yours. So through the hurt of life, through the suffering, through our weakness, through our confusion, he's going with us through all of it and guiding us to victory, to our guaranteed victory. So why all this? What have we been talking today? Why, why did we even spend time on this? What are we to learn from this? On the bottom of your notes is a quote from N.T. Wright that says, Unity and holiness will come and will only come as the mind of the community and individuals within it are transformed to reflect the mind of the Messiah himself. Our body, our collective body, our church body here must be one of unity. It must be one that is marked by holiness. And when I say holiness, I'm not talking about a, a false piety. I'm not talking about nothing ever bad happens. We are good. You know, not that at all. That There is a separateness. There is a uniqueness about how the way that we treat one another, about the way that we treat the community around us, about the way that we live, what we do with our money, what we do with our time. It's got to be different. Not an imitation but an impartation of Christ's spirit in and through us flowing into the world and into those that are around us. Using our spiritual gifts to bless one another. That is what our body needs to be. And we need to be constantly becoming more and more like our Savior, both individually and as a community of believers. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. Community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. Our aim is for complete obedience to God's will. It is for our first reaction to be to whatever comes our way in life, whether it be blessing or suffering, our first reaction should be that we respond in a way that corresponds directly to how Jesus would act or think. That is a high calling. 
So what about us? Let's reflect and think about that. Where are you today? I'd like just to take a moment for us to kind of close our eyes, bow our head, and then think about this thought. Where are you today? My first question and most important question is this. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? If not, He desperately wants to be. He wants to be so much that He joyfully emptied Himself and He became your sacrifice for sin. And He did everything needed to be done to make a way for you to get back into a right relationship with the Father. If that's you, I hope that you'll speak to someone today. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Because none of this matters without that. Number two, maybe you're in the middle of a hardship. Maybe you're right in the middle of a struggle. Maybe you feel alone and like you need to give up. Maybe you need to spend some time reflecting on the Christ hymn in Philippians and remember that you have a Savior that has experienced the worst this world could throw at him. And he came through victorious and he has made that victory yours. Maybe you need to spend some time in prayer with someone If so, contact us. Let us know. Look up one of our elders, one of the pastors, and say, listen, I am struggling. That is not something to be ashamed of. We all struggle. We all have moments. Just because you're a pastor doesn't mean that everything goes great in your life and you have arrived now and everything is just hunky-dory. We struggle. And we need to be able to struggle together. And we need to be able to put our arms around one another and say, let's look to the Lord. Maybe you've come through great struggles. Maybe you've experienced the comfort of God's grace and and the strengthening of your faith. Are you looking for others? Are you looking for those that you can come alongside to cheer on and to encourage? I hope today as a body we will decide that our church, that Vic Woods Bible Church, that we as individuals are going to be marked by our emptying of ourselves, our love for others, and our focus on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. We confess so many times We fall completely short, constantly fall short of who you are. More than just fall short, we are completely inadequate. But you have given us, by your grace, the mind of Christ in Christ Jesus. First of all, I pray for anyone here that does not know you as Savior, Lord. Convict their heart. May your Holy Spirit work now. Help them to speak with someone today to find out who this Jesus is, to find out what this radical new life, this changed life means. I pray for those that I know are sitting here in this room that are hurting, that can't figure out which way is up, don't know where you are, are wondering what is the point, what is the meaning. 
God, may they speak up. May they, may they contact someone. May give, give someone special uh, unction, Lord, to, to connect with people and, and just say, hey, I, I've noticed. Are you doing okay? And that, that relationships will be grounded not on us meeting one another's needs, but on us together running to you, the only one who can meet our needs. And I pray for those that have had their faith strengthened and deepened, that they would be searching for ways to bless others. Help us to be, again, a church marked as those who love you and love one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Josh, I invite you now to stand with us as we close. There is no song we could sing to honor Sinner beyond the infinite.